Welcome to the Petzinger Brothers Podcast. Kick back and enjoy the musings of James, John, David, Joseph, and Ben, five brothers raised decades ago on a dysfunctional farm in western Idaho. Welcome back to the Petzinger Brothers Podcast. Today is September 27th. This is James. This is John. This is David. Ben here. This week, uh, Joseph is unable to join us in our discussion. That's okay. We'll look forward to him being a part of our discussion next week. Last week's podcast was really, really great. Listening back on it, uh, I really got a lot out of it, and we got a lot of great feedback from people who listened to the podcast that our discussion of traditions really struck a chord, and I'm really glad to hear that. It's always gratifying to hear that uh, something that we've discussed and the memories that we've shared with each other have been something that other people listening to the podcast have taken uh, to heart and have felt the value of. So, uh, again, I thank you all for for participating and being willing to give up a little bit of time to, um, to be here. Now, I know last week we... We started it, it, and this is an inevitability when discussing traditions because things that you do on a regular basis are either pleasurable or they're drudgery. And so a lot of traditions are just basically, that's a, a fancy word for chores. I think we mentioned the fact that some of the things we were starting to discuss fit in the chore genre. And I think that's what we're going to do this week is just continue that discussion of things that we did on a regular basis, only now under the title of chores. Ben, you brought up a uh, a great chore uh, toward the end of last week's podcast that occupied a tremendous amount of our time. Why don't you go ahead and pick it up kind of where you left off with our discussion of wood? Well, um, the way that Dad had designed and built our home, wood, the house was heated by means of wood. And uh, in that house, we had three stoves and two fireplaces, so a total of five wood source or wood heat sources for heat. It was uh, that was central to the house. Dad eventually put in uh, a central furnace, electric uh, furnace. But I think for the majority of all of our lives, we we uh, we were very familiar with having to go out, fill up. Uh, bins or stacks and bringing wood every day, twice a day. Uh, not only that, it was tending the fires. But, I mean, this can go on uh, several different directions on, on wood as a chore, but it didn't matter how cold. You, if you didn't go out and get wood, you didn't have heat, and so it wasn't really a choice. It was just a matter of who drew the shortest straw, <laughs> who had to go out and actually do it. Right. Getting wood that particular chore was always associated with going outside into the cold, into the weather. And in the wintertime, it was never pleasant. Of course, you're not getting wood during the summertime. Uh, we'll talk about wood during the summer as a, as a different aspect of the whole chore there. But during the wintertime, it was always muddy, slushy, wet, cold, never a pleasant chore. Uh, I remember never wanting to do that. It was never a chore that I felt like, oh, I look forward to doing that. And Not, dark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And dark. No lights. Yeah, the barn didn't have lights until I was in high school. 
it was pitch black. You'd have to yeah. get the wood in pitch darkness. Uh, and I, I, I wish that it, there was some kind of, you know, this technology where you can see in the dark now, but I wish there was a camera on me so you could see how I looked walking into that barn almost, you know, every time. I'd, you know, I'd have my hands out in front of me, kind of waving them. And, and, it, and I was always expecting my hand to land on some furry beard or something, you know, some, <laughs> some dude in the, in the barn just standing there or, or some heavy coat. I was just waiting for my hands to hit something like that. That's what was always in my head. So you, this feeling of dread walking into the barn. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's remarkable, John, because I don't think I've ever talked to you guys about this. That That is the source of a majority of my nightmares growing up was <laughs> – going out into that pitch blackness and groping your way to the wood pile. And yeah. I, I, I was kind of the little opposite. I would lean backwards and use my feet and kind of tiptoe my way until I found the wood pile. And uh, as I would reach for the wood one piece at a time, and you never knew what you were getting because the wood was all different shapes and sizes. It wasn't like it was split wood. It was cut with a, a skill saw. It was scrap lumber. Uh, had a lot of nails in it. You had to be careful. And, uh, but yeah, as I would reach for a piece, I always anticipated someone grabbing my wrist and that was the end of me. And it was traumatic. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, it was scary stuff, but we did it. You know, we just had to do it, get over it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Considering how scary that experience was, I find it remarkable that none of us took advantage of that opportunity to go into the wood stack and wait. <laughs> it's too scary to even, it would have been too scary to pull that off because you have to wait in the darkness. <laughs> I, I suppose so. It just, That's why it never happened. Uh, that practical joke just, uh, it was too cold, too much trouble to go out there and, and try to pull that one off. But uh, you scare yourself doing it. No, no kidding. Well, Ben, you brought up a couple of aspects of this that need to be fleshed out in a little bit more detail because there are a whole series of of sequential chores associated with that final step of bringing the wood in and tending the stove. Um, first of all, the wood has to be quote-unquote harvested from some structure that's been torn down and once the structure's been torn down, the wood needs to be hauled off to the property. And we, we've spoken about doing that um, a couple times in previous podcasts. And then once the wood has been brought to the property, I remember one chore that we were constantly being assigned was uh, nail removal. Yeah. You know, dad would give us a hammer and a bucket, and we had to turn those boards over and back those nails out, just boom, 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 hammer those nails out, pull them out of the board, throw them in the bucket. Uh, I remember spending hours and hours doing nothing more than hammering nails out of wood so that uh, when that wood was getting cut and dad would do all of the cutting of the wood, cut it down to size to fit in the stove, he wouldn't uh, uh, drive that skill saw through some nail. You know, I look today at... uh Interior finishes, architects will specify uh, a reclaimed lumber for a decorative wall or perhaps a wood flooring. And I look at the amount of money that uh, people are willing to pay to recycle lumber. And then I think of the tonnage 
the, the cubic yards, the thousands and thousands and thousands of cubic yards, or I should say cords, however you measure wood, that we burned of, of high dollar wood, you know, <laughs> from from ancient old barns in the countryside that dad would somehow finagle a deal and and uh, he would catch wind that it was going to be torn down either for a new house or a new subdivision and, and he would he would be commissioned to just tear it down and haul it off. I don't know if dad ever made money. It was more or less just let me take the stuff. Right, right. At no cost. Yeah. Really, literally, the, the only cost uh, to heat the house was the elbow grease that it took to denail the wood, cut it up, stack it, and then bring it into the house every morning and evening or afternoon to keep the fire going and, and keep us warm. When most people think of demolition, James, they think of a, uh, a front loader, a bulldozer, bob, uh, a bobcat, or a backhoe. When Dad looked at demolition, it was one piece at a time with a crowbar, his claw hammer, and a little skill saw. Right. That was it. He didn't use anything else. He was very careful about tearing things apart because he did cull through the lumber and identify the, the pieces that he wanted to preserve, and we had a lot of lumber stacks uh, throughout the property. That's right. true. That, that was part of the nail pulling. You know, you yeah. look for those straight boards. Those straight boards are separated from the bad ones. And uh, the, the straight boards, of course, you want to get 100% of the nails out. And, you know, those nails, we we didn't – yeah, we, we had a bucket them. for them, but we straightened them before we threw in the bucket. You had to turn that nail on its side and straighten it out. You had to pound out the curve in it. <laughs> we uh, never threw them away, did we? No, Dad reused them. That's yeah. right. He build with those old rusty nails, and in, in in definitely one of the topics that we've not yet covered is, in general, the house. So we refer to it as the house, but that house was built from that reclaimed lumber and those uh, reshaped nails. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that I mean, that's not all that was used, but that was a major portion of the material that was used to build that house. Mm-hmm. And the, barn, so, and, the and, and the barns, the shops, all of the outlying buildings, the yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. It may have been a matter of necessity on the part of of Dad when it came to construction materials to acquire the materials in this way. But when you look at the amount of conservation, maybe the best way to refer to it is forced conservation as a result of the economic situation that he implemented there to build that house is actually. Very, very remarkable. I would challenge anyone, anyone out there to do something equivalent. Uh, I don't know that they could. Mm-hmm. The whole the whole process of, of getting that wood into the stove to keep us warm was just, uh, I don't know, that was a series of chores that uh, will never, ever leave me. And as I was contemplating this particular topic this week, it occurred to me that my life has not changed much. Every chore that I identified is a chore that in some form or fashion I am still responsible for doing or have assigned to my own kids to do. Not necessarily the nail removal and, and you know, nail bending and all that, but, you know, wood gathering, you know, uh, we still do that when I'm, anytime I've got a, you know, a piece of wood that lands on the property from some tree or whatever, I, I don't throw it to the curb. I cut it up, stack it up. Yeah. You know, I, I just looked at all this, these chores that we used to do and I thought, wow, I'm still doing a lot of that stuff. Like like um, weeding. <laughs> yeah, that's on my list, James, weeding. I tell you, 
we did plenty of that. Yeah. That was just never ending. And my my back is killing me today because of it. I blame it on weeding. <laughs> weeding back then or weeding recently? No, back then. I, think uh, I, I back. I blame it on then. <laughs> really, just too many too many hours stooped over pulling weeds, and wrenching. You know, wrenching those big uh, those tumbleweeds that had the inch and a half diameter. You know, center stock. <laughs> insane weeds. You'd pull a five-gallon bucket of dirt out with the stock. Exactly. You know, John, but we were good at that. Yeah. And we're good at it now. Pulling weeds. <laughs> pulling weeds. It's just, it's like rototiller mode. Get out there, get it done, and move on. Yeah. I've I've tried showing my kids how to do it the right way. You know, there is a right way to pull weeds, as silly as it sounds, but there is. And, you know, you can do it with both hands, not just one. And yeah, that's You're right, right Ben. I, I am a machine when it comes to pulling weeds. Like and, a, uh, it's it's like mom and dad bred weed cultivators. We're out there with two <laughs> hands grabbing weeds with both hands. Yeah. You know, multitasking. Yeah, and they they fly. But it uh, when I try and show the kids, they're just you know they 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 leave almost with tears in their eyes because they can't keep up. They don't get it, and they just they see the the weeds ahead of them. That's all they see. Yeah. They can't, they can't, you know, and, and maybe it's because I didn't break it up in squares like Dad used to. One square at a time, you got to break the problem apart in pieces, or it will overwhelm you. That was the mistake I made, you know. Go yeah. eat the whole hill. Uh, <laughs> but my my kids, they're, I mean, they're so tough in a lot of things. But when it comes to some of these simple chores that we grew up with, it'll put them into tears almost, because. <laughs> You know, I, it's not the way they were raised. Yeah. Oh, weeds, what? Well, it's not a pleasant task in any aspect. I mean, it's the sun's bearing down on your back. You're you're stooped over. Your knees are in the ground. The feeling, one of the feelings I despise the most is when I am on my hands and knees and I back up half a foot to move and my knee comes down on some dumb rock. Oh, You know, yeah. I, it happens... That you can't avoid. It's always going to happen when you're weeding. And I don't know. I'm one of those people that I go into the the hardware store and I see those those weeding knee pads that you can get. You know, you strap them onto your knees so that your knees won't hurt. And I don't know. Maybe there's an ego thing going on here. But I look at it and I go, what kind of pansy would wear those? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not going to wear that. Goodness sake. You know, you know what else really bugs me to this day? <laughs> what really bugs me, especially in the in the suburban environment, and I, I live in that environment, and I I'm, I don't want to I don't want to get knocking it too much. I mean, there's a lot of great things about that environment, but what bothers me is people that buy the chemicals, these herbicides, and spray the weeds in their drives, and they don't pull them. It's just a big dead weed there now. Yeah, and it's as if they're done. All you have to do is bend down and yank it out, but they won't. No, they they got to spray it, and yeah. now it's dead. And it's this shriveled up thing in that crack of the sidewalk. You know, they couldn't just bend over and pull it. And for whatever reason, that sets me off. I just want to knock on their door and say, hey, you you know, all you had to do is grab it, yank it. That's all, that's all there is to it, you know? John, have you have you pulled weeds for other people? Spontan- <laughs> I, just spontaneously? I do, pull, I do pull my neighbor's weeds. You bet I do. I cross the line all the time. <laughs> uh, as much as, you know... 
as much as my back hurts at the end of the day, you know, stooped over, I'm doing it. I still enjoy it. I like being outside. I like being out in the sun. Uh, so that that hasn't left me. It's, yeah. Uh, I, do I have like to confess, guys, I I really um, enjoy pulling the weeds in my yard. I took a day <laughs> off work. It, well, I just got the house, just got the lawn and planted it, and tons of weeds came up. I don't know where they came from. I took a day off work just so I could pull weeds, and I enjoyed it. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, there's something very uh, very therapeutic about it. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Didn't have to didn't have to use toxic weed killers and it took a few hours, but it you know brought back some good memories in a way, not so good. It wasn't <laughs> fun when we were kids. I tell you that was that was just bad news pulling weeds because it was never ending. That was the chore that would just never go away. Right. Well, I'm I'm not as nostalgic about weeds because of of where we are in uh, <laughs> on our acreage here. I'm overwhelmed with them and. Yeah. Uh, I, the only way for me to keep up is I do have to use chemicals, and I try to get stuff that will burn clear to China, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's, but, not a you suburban, know, that's not a suburban sidewalk, Ben. Right. You have yeah, a that's difference there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I look out and I think, you know, where where are my 10-foot uh, by 10-foot uh, squares for the kids? I need to get out there and... and Get them working, and I, I think it would reduce them to tears. I just don't think that that they're oh, it old will. Enough. I don't think that they're old enough to even be able to pull one out yet. But it'll come. I, I my boys will have an opportunity to to see what it's like. You know, and and it will. And it, and what it is though is that they're. I'm showing them how to do it. You know, you grab that big, rather mature weed. You grab it and you just yank it out like it's nothing. You know, the whole thing just flies out of the ground, root system and all, and. The kid, the little kid is watching this. Like I remember watching dad showing me how to do it. Right. And I, I grab the same weed and I put my whole body into it. I can't budge it. And he just grabs it with one hand and yanks it out like it's nothing. And that's what's frustrating. Right. <laughs> Here's how you do it. No, he's, he's well, done it all the time. John, you bring up something interesting that, and it's not specific to a particular chore, but any chore that we were assigned by dad, he did take the time most of the time he took the time to show us how to do it. And it was, he took painful details to show us how to do it. And he would end up doing three quarters of the chore sometimes. And it would, fr- I, I can only speak for myself, but it would frustrate me to no end to see and get excited to paint something. You know, he'd have a, uh, he'd have me whitewash a fence and he would do half of the area I was supposed to do. And I, <laughs> I'm like, dad, you, you, you know, you almost did it all. And, um, Invariably, he would come back, and and what would he always tell us to do? Do it again. Yeah. You know, he was he was a perfectionist in many ways, but the perfection in him was he had a certain way to do things, and he wanted us to follow that precisely. And so he took a lot of time to show us. Mm-hmm. And that was with most chores, most tasks that he had us do. He took his time, and he went over it with us, and then made us do it again, and sometimes three times, whatever it took. And that's... That's what frustrated me. Yeah, I, I remember doing that. I almost think it was a psychological play because pretty soon we'd be like, Dad, let me do it. Right. Let me do it. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Uh, he, would, yeah. he, would, he would pick chores that were actually that had some element of uh, fun. And then, you know, because it was kind of fun to paint things, you know. There's, there's a certain element of fun associated with, with painting um, and I do remember that being one of those chores. I didn't mind doing so much, 
but then he would do it and he he just wouldn't stop and you you'd be kind of well should i now am am i supposed what uh and he just <laughs> he just keep going until we said i want to do it just like you said david and and i look back on that now and think wow if that was intentional if he was intentionally getting us to that point where we were voluntarily <laughs> putting ourselves in the place to do this chore, then that's just uh, it's genius. <laughs> I don't know. I think he actually liked doing just whatever work came his way. He enjoyed doing it. Yeah. And I, I remember him telling me once, Dave, you just have to enjoy what you do. No matter mm-hmm. what it is, you have to enjoy your work. And I, I don't know what I was holding, if it was a hammer or a paintbrush. I just, I think I almost threw it on the ground and said, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I was doing at the time, I hated it. And I think I told him, and he, he came back with that sort of philo- philosophical uh, you know, position. You just have to learn to enjoy whatever you do. That's what it was. You have to learn to find yeah. something enjoyable in it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he echoed that to me. It just yeah. you, you have to learn to enjoy working. It's something yeah. you'll have to learn. I, I think, David, I think you, you, you're you probably correct that he was doing it as a psychological play. But he, and, and like you said, he just enjoyed it. He just enjoyed putting his head down and just going. And maybe, maybe every once in a while, it was our interruption that said, oh, I better stop and hand it over. Hand it over to the kids so he can ruin it. No, I'll come back and do it later. <laughs> yeah. I do remember one time, though, uh, climbing onto the roof of the house. And uh, in the distance, I could see our neighbor, uh, Mr. Brown, with his uh, torching equipment. You know, he was out burning weeds. And I'm I'm looking at, at this 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 wide path of destruction that he's creating as he's burning all of these weeds off around the perimeter of his, his property. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why can't we get a weed burner and just burn all of our weeds? You know, why, why don't we get some, some herbicide and, and, and start spraying the weeds around here? You know, and, and I'm looking down at the property and everywhere I look, there's only three things to see. Trees, weeds, or dirt, and I'm like, man, why, why are we doing it this way? And now, of course, I, I look at all the weeds and I think, mm, okay, I uh, got to go pick those. You know, those got to be pulled out. Uh, it doesn't occur to me that uh, it's a bad thing. It really is a, it's, it's a type of work that can be, uh, I don't know, for me, very, very, uh, get me out of the office, get me into the dirt. Uh, kind of bring me back and reground me. So yeah, yeah. Which that brings up the story that should be under close calls. I don't know if we brought up that story about when Mr. Brown was burning off the weeds along the the ditch, and it it, it started a fire in our field. Is it, oh yeah, we talked about that. We didn't talk about that. Let's save that for um, a follow up on our close calls. Uh, okay. One of the one of the things I've definitely identified as a potential for future discussions is that many of our discussions are only tip of the iceberg type discussions so yeah keep that one in mind and we'll, we'll talk about that one more in the future watering was another thing that that i remember as being a chore but not a chore that i minded too much um there was something about watering the trees watering the fruit trees that yeah. i got a, a a personal satisfaction from even even 
at a young age because there was this there was this this plus this equals this i could definitely see the results of you water the tree the tree grows fruit comes out you get to eat the fruit and that was that was one of those things that was very appealing to me and i felt like oh i'm contributing to an overall end goal here that i am going to be able to enjoy with the weeds it was you pick the weeds you move on you go back to where you were picking weeds before and there are new weeds there is no goal here there's no end goal this is a pointless exercise why do we pick these weeds when they just keep coming back but with the watering um for me that was a a good chore i like that chore and uh i remember the pump the water pump um spigot was not um you know was it was kind of far removed from the actual trees and we didn't have a hose long enough to reach from that spigot out to where the orchard was so it was literally fill the bucket, carry the bucket over, dump the bucket at the base of the tree, walk back to the spigot, fill the bucket, and back and forth, back and forth, carrying those water buckets. Yeah. That was a big deal to me, though, the water buckets, because uh, it, to me it was how much water could I put in these five-gallon buckets as compared to Dad. You know, Because Dad, of course, would always fill up both five-gallon buckets. That's a lot of weight. You know, and he, it was just effortless for him to walk across the property holding that weight. And for me, how, of course, you know, you just get a fraction in each bucket compared to him. But, um, you know, it was always that looking up to dad. Uh, right. Are you going you know, to be as strong as him someday? And when you're a kid, that was a big deal. So that that was, for me, kind of finding the fun in that kind of work. Yeah. You know, one summer would definitely be different from the next. I could put more water in those buckets, you know, the next summer. Right. Yep, less marks in the dirt as yeah. as far as how many buckets you had brought to that particular tree. I remember, right. you know, you had to you, you'd keep tally in the in the dirt the number of buckets that you'd brought over, and and Dad would always tell you, well, if that's how, you know if that's how much you're going to fill the bucket, then you need to bring over this many for each tree. Yeah. But then, you know, eventually we had. I think he actually ran a spigot out to the orchard. Did he not? No. No. Unless it? it was te- unless it was temporary, but the the hose bib that that I always remember was on the corner of the shop, uh, pretty close to the wellhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he ran it. He ran a temporary out there. That was it. Yeah. Okay. So he ran a, he, he was either a pipeline or another hose. It was a hose under the ground Yeah. something. I don't know. So that we, so that we didn't have to carry the buckets so, so far and we could then use a hose out there in the orchard to, to water the trees. And I remember even then conservation moving that hose from tree to tree if you dared just let the water run out of the hose when you were going from tree to tree, that was grounds for a an earful. You got to kink. You got to kink that. You got to kink that hose. That's right. Kink uh, that hose. I, I still do that today. We, we yeah. planted a bunch of trees on a berm in front of our house, just uh, in, in this on this property, and I don't have irrigation out there, so I have to water them manually. And I will kink that hose. I will not allow a drip to go to waste. I will not give water to the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I mean, I have this, uh, I have all the capability of putting in an automatic system for, you know, the garden area that I've, that I have built up in the backyard and I've got fruit trees and vegetables and, and fruit and whatnot out there. I refuse to do it, you know? I would much rather go from uh, plot to plot, from tree to tree, watering it manually 
And again, this one of those chores I still to this day do. James, I, I agree 100%. I'm doing the same thing at our house in Boise, uh, the same thing. Everything I'm planning on the back, I'm not tying any of it into the automatic that's currently there. And I love, uh, when we were there, uh, I loved coming home you know, from work and go out and water those trees. It's just, it's just a kick. I love it. This is really bizarre. And, you know, for, for, for anyone out there who wants to do any psychoanalysis on this, I think about the, the, think about the, the reality of this, this, uh, this concept of going from a chore that we may have not looked forward to in childhood has now become a, a method by which we ground ourselves here in, in, in later life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I find that just very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, what, one thing I've, I, I've taken great pleasure in, James, is my kids will now take the hose and go from tree to tree, and I've dug out the wells around the trees, and it's a kick in the pants to see uh, our four-year-old son figure out how to leverage the hose over his shoulder and lean forward and pull that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all had to do that. We all figured yeah. out how to yank those hoses around when we finally got them. And, um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of memories flood back, you know, because they can't carry the buckets. And and I've taught, I've explained to them, if we don't water these trees, they won't make it. These trees have to become established. And their root system has to become established. And, and uh, you know, next spring is the, the landscape project is next spring, and we hope to get that automated. But at least for now, they've got a taste of it. And, and for the most part, I can turn them loose and say, "Hey guys, go out and go out and water these trees, and uh, um, hope for the best. Hope for the best yeah. that they actually do it." The, you know, speaking of watering, uh, water was also something we had to provide for the livestock, um, along with feed, and that was another one of those early morning in the dark type chores. If it was uh, your, if you know, if you drew the straw to be the one that went out and fed the goats, the pigs, the chickens, the whatever. Um, in a future podcast, we will talk about livestock to, in, in much greater detail. But one of the one of the consistent chores that we had to do was to take care of the animals. It was cold, and you had to put X amount of hay in the trough with just a little bit of of oats on top of that to you know keep the to keep the goats happy that kind of thing. And then there was the milking the goats. And uh, uh, you had to milk. One goat was dedicated to milk that was meant for all the baby goat kids. And then you would, you know, pour that into the bottle and put that nipple on there and then go and feed the the baby goats. And the other milk that came from the goats was meant for us. And that had to be brought in, you know, and and pasteurized inside. And and, um, I just remember that being... The longest of all the chores, and it was probably the most tedious, uh, was milking those goats. You did most of that. I remember you doing most of that, though, yeah. uh, goat milking. For whatever reason, I, I didn't do it nearly as much as you did. And I think that had more than anything to do with age and just the yeah. amount of you know uh, literal hand-grip power that it took to milk those goats. Mm. And it was frustrating to no end because... I and I to this day I don't understand why the goats did it, but those hind legs so fast would just come up and there the bucket would go, and you're just looking at this quickly disappearing, seeping into the muck 
puddle of milk that you've just worked 10 minutes to try to, 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 to get out of this goat, and there it is. It's all gone. Well, you guys should know that when I would milk the goats, I don't know how many times, you know, that you work so hard to get that bucket full. And then towards the end, if that hoof that's covered in all of that awful muck, if that hoof doesn't end up in that bucket almost nearly every time, I never said a word about it. I just let the hoof go in the bucket, you know, and I'd scoop whatever came, you know, off the hoof that was floating around in the milk. I'd scoop it out, bring it in, put it on the stove. I wouldn't say a word. Well, at least it was pasteurized. <laughs> I figured, yeah, we're we're gonna cook it anyway. You know, nobody needs to know, and I'm not gonna throw it away. I worked too hard on this. But there was some really bad stuff in that milk, guys. That's <laughs> <laughs> when I milked the goats. There was really bad stuff in that milk. Uh, that's that's nice to know now. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a frustrating chore. Just wa- watching that disappear and kicking yep. it over and, and then getting kicked. You know, I've already got a pretty uh, sketchy history with goats and, and whatnot, so <laughs> I was a little uh, hesitant to volunteer for that one. But I hated being down that low right next to that uh, that kicking arm, that leg that was going to kick your bucket or kick you or step on you. Right. It. Yeah, at a certain point I got to the, I, I got to the point where I, I – began to be able to pick up on the physical cues that that leg was about to go. Yeah. And I learned how to, you know, toss my elbow in there um, to keep the leg from coming into the bucket or knocking the bucket over. So, you know, the, the more practice I had with it, the, the less that happened. But still, every once in a while, they'd catch you off guard. Um, I remember many mornings going out there, milking those goats, and... You know, I'd have my head up against the side of the goat, hunched over on that little stool, milking this goat, and I'd fall asleep. <laughs> and I'd wake up, and I had this this frozen icicle of drool on my chin. My hands were warm because they were still gripping the udders. <laughs> but I'm like in pain because my legs have fallen asleep. And I'm like stuck in this this crouching position, and interestingly enough, the goats never never kicked the bucket when I fell asleep. <laughs> well, yeah, never they never did. I think it was you know probably the discomfort of being you know squeezed well, like, like that. The goat turns the goat turns and looks at you and says, "Oh, my peat warmer is here this morning." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, it happens so many sure. times. I'm pretty sure it all had to do with how you handled the udders. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fairly certain. And some goats were more finicky than others when it came yeah, to that. But uh, no doubt about that. But if you did your job well. They probably weren't gonna kick it. Yeah, some some goats were great. I, the one goat I remember named Wings had those uh, white wing marks on her flanks. Uh, that goat was wonderful. Hardly ever kicked a bucket and. Um, just a wonder, wonderful goat to work with. Liesel, that goat, hated that goat. And I think that goat knew that we all didn't like her and that we didn't like her milk because it tasted horrible. You know, that was the milk we gave to the baby goats. I think she knew on some level that that we did not like her very much. And she was just cantankerous, always kicking that bucket. Is that, is that where the saying came from? No, I don't. The animal kicks the bucket, they're going to go out and get it. I, I don't like, know. You kick the bucket, you're dead. 
Well, it's a good thing. Cause Cause I, sure good wanted, thing. I, I sure wanted to kill those goats. You know, if you have a full bucket, they come in, they kick it. Oh. Let's <laughs> <laughs> kill it. I that remember. is a good thing that we didn't have easy access to firearms, or I think the goats would. <laughs> of course, you could you could always turn John loose in there to rope them, and you know. <laughs> yeah. I do remember one morning, um, for whatever reason, I was in a bad mood, and the there was zero cooperation on the part of the goats, and. <laughs> I had reached the end of my patience rope with these goats and the goat, the the bucket was full. I mean, I was literally on my way to stand up and pull that bucket out and boom, foot came up, kicked that bucket and everything was gone. Just gone. You know, it was all, it's all gone. And I lost it. I just, I was like, you stupid goat. And I picked that goat up and I just tossed it over the fence. <laughs> it, you know, the goat went. You know, it, it hit it hit the ground on its legs, and it and it toppled over on its side and skidded on its side out there in the in the you know right in front of the barn in the gravel and and whatnot. And stupid goat. And I look up, and Dad's standing there. <laughs> and he looks down at the goat. He looks at me. <laughs> He didn't say a word. He just kept walking into the barn. <laughs> he wasn't the only one that saw that, James. I was oh, whoa, did you see that? I saw you do that. And I, I remember thinking, whoa, he is strong. Wow. You know? I didn't say anything either. I just kept, I think I was behind Dad. I, we just kind of both went walking. Oh. And, and so I, I went out. And the funny, you know, goat didn't run away or anything. Just got back up, came right over to the the pen. I let the goat back in and went inside with an empty bucket. You know, and we just had that much less milk to drink. Yeah, and it's so frustrating because it's not like they're they, you know they don't care. They just they're just chewing their cud or just hanging out. They don't even know what happened. Even when you chucked her over the fence, you didn't know what had happened, and no big deal. Yeah, but that I do remember. You are—it's the orangutan arms. They just <laughs> came out. <laughs> I, had, I just had never been so angry at this. This just uh, years and years of frustration built up, yeah. and that goat took the brunt of it. But well, Dad, Dad probably didn't say anything because he completely understood. He, yeah. he, just, he said, you know, probably said to himself, "I've been there. I'm just going to walk on by." <laughs> Yeah, uh, I didn't realize that uh, any of you had ever seen that. That, that no, you'd seen that. there. Oh, yeah. we're gonna have Peter calling next. Speaking of Peter calling, uh, and, and I know we're gonna have a separate discussion on uh, animals in general, but watering the hogs was a very frustrating deal until Dad and I had built the uh, the stationary uh, troughs where they could they could feed, not tip anything over. And uh, I remember one day hauling buckets clear out to the back of those those uh, pig pens, and this one particular pig kept knocking it over, knocking it over, and um, Dad snapped. And the tool of choice, out of convenience, was a flathead shovel. And I I didn't see it coming. I just saw this shovel glimmer in the sun as it did a roundhouse swing from the outside of the fence, and it hit that pig square in the head. <laughs> laid it out 
<laughs> and it never tipped over that water again. <laughs> so you, you wonder, these animals, they are kind of dumb, but they'll remember that type of pain. Yeah. <laughs> and associate that with tipping something over. And after that, it solved. And you know, the, the whole thing, Dad never said a word. It was just silent pain deliverance. Just... <laughs> Pig tips over water one more time. I'm going to do this. It does it. He grabs a shovel, roundhouse swing, boom, knocks the pig out. Never had a problem with that animal again. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, can, I can see that happening. Yep. Those are those stories aren't going to go over too well with a lot of people. No, no they're not. They're really not. <laughs> well, I will, I will say this for anyone for whom those stories don't go over well. I guarantee you they <laughs> never, ever had to deal with that situation on a daily basis and have never understood and will never un- understand what it takes to actually raise livestock and to uh, keep livestock from literally ripping everything to shreds. Yeah, it's, it is true. I mean, there's, um, I did, uh, I did see dad out in the pen one day with um, the buck, uh, you know, the buck. Oh yeah. This was a huge, huge animal with those huge horns and uh he was in the corral with it and he walked up next to it and he real quick like he was he was being real quiet real slow and that buck had reared up and was watching him you know and he put his horns down put his head down and he was challenging dad you know his dad was in his space and he walked closely up to the buck and then real quick, like, he grabbed that buck's horns and just twisted that entire head, just flipped that buck around and slammed the animal down into the ground and put all of his weight right on his neck and his head, and he had his horns in his hands. And he just laid there on top of the buck, and he talked to him real quiet-like. The goat whisperer. <laughs> the goat whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> and... And he just laid there. He had his whole body on this, you know. And it was kind of it was scary to watch. I was a kid, and, and watching him do that uh, was kind of spooky. And he just laid into it, and the buck was having a hard time breathing. You know, his eyes were rolling in the back of his head, and Dad was just talking to him. And he laid there for a long time, just held in that position. The buck was struggling and struggling, and then it stopped struggling, um, and just got real quiet. And uh, then he let him go, walked away. And he never had a problem with it again. He could go into the corral with it at all times, you know, because I guess before the buck maybe had, had butted him or something. Yeah. He had to fix the problem because, you know, he had to get in the pen quite often or in the corral. Uh, but he was always very careful to warn us that we were never allowed to get near the, the buck because, um, of course, the buck did not respect us in that way. Right, uh, but it, but it worked, and you know if you if you were to have that on film or to see that, it was pretty, pretty graphic. It was pretty rough. It looked pretty rough, but um, you know the buck wasn't hurt. Uh, got right back up, and and the the problem was solved though. Right, the the dominance had been established. Right, the dominance, the alpha, whatever you want to call it, had been yeah. established. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are. We've 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 started jumping right into that discussion on livestock i knew that was going to happen when i brought up uh chores it's it's almost impossible it's not to separate the two it is and and that's and, and again when we talk about livestock we're going to have uh we're going to be tempted also to talk about the goats and goat adventures and we're going to have to 
you know, we're going to have to exercise a, a certain degree of patience and uh, not to give too much away in our in our discussion then. Um, because there were very, very specific adventures with the goats that, that I'd like to talk about at some point. Well, would anyone <laughs> like to describe what we did with the milk after we milked the goats? Yeah, go ahead. Well, we okay, we'll bring it into the house and filter it first because... Uh, because I think, John let him step in it. Yeah, <laughs> we knew that it wasn't all going to uh, be perfect, so... Uh, we put it. We put the co- weren't they coffee filters, and we put them at the bottom of a strainer so that everything got caught. I mean, every little fine particle got caught. And after everything had been strained, then we put it on the stove and heat it uh, to pasteurize it, and then it was drinkable. Right. And we'd know it was pasteurized if there was a skin on top of the milk. Right. Once it started to wrinkle up on top of the milk, we knew that it hit it. It it had hit that temperature necessary for pasteurization. Yeah, and you had to be very careful not to burn it because burnt milk is horrible. Oh yeah, oh, it tastes terrible. So that's that's how we got our milk for mm-hmm. what April through October was the uh, time period that we had goat milk for in our fridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much yeah. pretty much April through October, I think. Yeah, and that transition does everyone remember going from goat milk or going from from cow's milk to goat milk? I was, that was a, a, at least a week where everything was just sour. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah, well, right. cow's milk is just so sweet. It was like drinking candy when you, all you've been drinking is goats. To go to cow milk is just like drinking cream. That's true. I, you know, I had forgotten about that until you just brought it up. There was right. a transition period of going back to the goat milk. You're right. But after I, a week or two, I, did, I didn't have any problems with it. It tasted just you know, yeah. plain like, like milk. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, when we had, I think when we had friends come over, we had to tell mom, you need to get some milk from the store. <laughs> yeah, nobody would drink it. You're right. Oh, yeah, you're right. Like, no one would drink it. And um, Well, one of the problems with, with uh, the milk, and it's not a problem with the milk, but one of the problems with the, the pasteurization process was that <clears throat> when the, the top of the milk would, would wrinkle and you'd hit that heat, you'd turn the heat off, but then you would have to quickly remove that that quote unquote skin that was forming at the top of the milk where it was oxidizing and starting to clump and you know you just want to get that out not that it's harmful or anything but it's just not a pleasant thing to drink you know because you you'd be downing a glass of milk and if it hadn't all been removed well there would be this slimy gloop that would just go down your throat and, um, of course, if you're used to that and you know what it is, ah, it's just a little bit of cooked milk, no big deal, no big problem. But for friends who were coming over to visit, that was like gag reflex, <laughs> gag reflex and, and <laughs> oh, my gosh, what in the world did I just swallow? You know, that was a very difficult thing for anyone who wasn't used to that to, uh, to experience. I do remember some of my friends the the looks on their faces <laughs> and i knew exactly what had just happened <laughs> i remember though you you talk about the transition going from uh, from the cow's milk to the goat's milk i remember the transition back from uh, goat's milk to cow's milk and i did not like the cow's milk for a little while because it was so thick yeah i didn't it, like it either yeah it I, felt I, I, sick oh you're crazy i loved it 
Yeah. It, it, oh my gosh. It was like and that, drinking well, ice cream. Yeah. I, and that, and that's, that's exactly what it was. It was like, oh, who melted the ice cream and poured exactly. it in a glass? You know, yeah. I don't like melted ice cream. And, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you get used to it within a, in the space of a week. So, yeah. all right. Well, we have, we have, uh, uh, hit the time wall and this has been a lot of fun. Um, the, the discussion on chores, uh, migrated to livestock and migrated to a very d- detailed uh, description of the goat's milk pasteurization process in our household. We didn't even talk about the chores that we had inside the house. Mm-hmm. And we'll let that be a, uh, uh, a discussion for some other time. Until that time, I'll say it's been a lot of fun. And this is where, we're, where we will call it for the evening. So, everyone, good night. Good night. Good night. Take care, everybody.